Welcome to the employment episode of the Park Lane Plowden podcast series. My name's Andrew Sugarman. I'm the joint head of the employment team. And today we're going to be looking at expert evidence in employment claims. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Devika Colwell, a consultant psychiatrist who, in addition to her busy practice, acts as an expert witness in employment tribunal claims and claims in the civil courts involving employment-related issues. Hello, very pleased to be here. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Amy Rumble, who is a member of the employment team here at uh, Park Lane Plowden. Hello, Andy. Amy, described recently by the Legal 500 as a rising star of the employment bar. So we're delighted to have her here too. We're going to look today at the legal landscape around expert evidence with Amy initially, and then we're going to turn to Dr. Colwell for the perspective of an expert in terms of giving us some tips and hints about how best to instruct experts and get the most out of them. And then finally, we're going to look in a little more detail at autistic spectrum condition cases. Dr. Colwell is an expert in that area and has some thoughts for us both from a medical and medico-legal perspective. So I'm going to kick off, Amy, with you. In your experience, in, in what situations do parties seek to rely on expert evidence? Uh, yes, well, firstly, in tribunal, we commonly see expert evidence used um, if a party is looking to prove disability uh, within the meaning of the Equality Act. But then perhaps more as a necessity, we see it used in personal injury cases and claims arising from a discrimination. The purpose of that being the report will seek to satisfy causation and is of crucial assistance uh, to the tribunal when assessing quantum, the prognosis and diagnosis of a condition and perhaps uh, such as future earning capacity. Yes. I, in fact, had a case uh, recently, sexual harassment claim in the civil courts where the claimant was uh, claiming an injury arising from a persistent course of sexual harassment. And we had an expert psychiatrist in that case dealing with uh, condition and causation and uh, prognosis. So necessary, as you say, to to approve the claim. C- can parties just obtain and rely upon expert evidence in the employment tribunal if they want to? No, Andy, no, they can't. Uh, permission is required. But it's usually dealt with at an early stage in that it will be identified as part of case management. And we can see it specifically flagged in case management agendas. So it can usually and helpfully be dealt with at, at the onset and at an early stage. Yes. Okay. Well, what, what about um, instructing an expert of your choice? Can How does it work if you want to pick an expert or do you have to try and agree a single expert with the other side? So for this, the most recent uh, guidance that we still have is that from 2001, which is the Decaser guidelines um, arising out of the case of Decaser and Wilson. It was the EAT uh, that at paragraph 36 of that uh, gave useful guidance. But the key takeaways being that a joint expert is preferable unless one side has already committed to an expert. But of course, they also note that that should be avoided unless there's special circumstances. So uh, first step being um, seeking a joint expert. But in practice, what we see is that that's often not the case, especially in 
disability cases where the onus is on the claimant to prove and show, firstly, they have the disability or um, injury arising, uh, as the case may be from, from the claim. So it's usually them that do the legwork and then um, turn to the respondent as to whether they want to challenge that evidence or whether they accept it. Um, so Again, the, the guidance that we did have in place isn't always the case in practice, but what was noted was that that was designed to be helpful guidance only and, and isn't um, necessarily the rules that apply. I think that's right, isn't it? In practice, often in disability claims, claimants don't want to pay for expert evidence and so they sometimes just use the medical records. Um, there was an EAT case, I think, wasn't there, which um, where the... EAT criticised an employment tribunal which had made an order that the respondent pay for expert evidence. The EAT said um, that wasn't appropriate. This is a case of city facilities and Ling. Uh, wasn't appropriate and um, in fact the claimant ought to have been allowed just to rely upon their medical records. Um, but there are difficulties I think in cases of mental impairments aren't there? Um, yes, Andy. I mean, in certain cases, of course, medical records may not be enough. Um, GPs are often used to dealing with perhaps more uh, orthopedic type injuries or uh, giving mental health uh, assistance. But of course, it, sometimes it's dependent on funding as well as to um, how much treatment they can um, assist an individual with or whether they need to um, see a, an expert in respect of their condition. Um, and, and therefore, depending on what is contained within their records, it, it may not be enough for the tribunal's determination um, that they can be satisfied based on those records alone that an individual comes within the parameters of Section 6 of the Equality Act. Yeah, I think the EAT has said on occasion that mental impairments may be too complex or too subtle uh, for a tribunal to deal with without expert evidence. So in your experience, do reports tend to come from GPs or specialists like Dr. Colwill? I think, again, it depends on uh, the condition in terms of what disability it is that's um, being identified and as well the complexity of, of that disability and as well proportionality in the case on a case-by-case -case basis. So um, I think there's a mix depending on what the legal representatives may take a view on whether it's cost efficient to seek an expert opinion or whether they feel there is enough within the medical records to prove disability under um, Section 6. What about, do you think, the advantages of a treating physician, which may be a GP or I suppose a treating psychiatrist as opposed to an independent one? I think there are advantages and disadvantages, would, would you think? Yes, no, certainly. I mean, a treating physician who's been treating an individual for a certain um, condition for a long time may be able to give a better analysis and, and better evidence on, on that condition compared to, for example, an expert who only evaluates that individual to one appointment. But then on the flip side, the treating individual may be said to not be independent um, may not have experience with dealing with court matters and, and the exact issues uh, and determinations that the tribunals are looking for. As well, what we see is tribunals may give more weight to an expert opinion um, rather than a GP who's been, who's been treating an individual for a condition for a long time. Well, speaking of experts, Dr. 
at Colwell. Thank you for for joining us. But I wonder first if you could just tell us a bit about your your day job. What what do you do? What does your practice consist of as a consultant psychiatrist? Presently, I have a private practice that has got two streams. So I have a neurodivergence clinic that deals with ADHD and autism assessments and treatment and um, a general mental health clinic. You now give expert evidence in legal claims in both the tribunal and, and the civil courts, I think. Um, can you just tell us a bit more about that? Does it tend to be for claimants, respondents? What type of claims do you get involved in? So in employment claims, I have given evidence as a single joint expert, primarily in neurodiversity related issues, particularly autism. I have also given opinions on condition, prognosis and causation in personal injury claims that run alongside the employment tribunal process, uh, particularly in harassment cases, including sexual harassment cases. We could have done with you in my case recently. <laughs> we were searching for an expert, but there are very, very long delays, I think, at the moment, in particularly with psychiatric evidence, because you're all so busy. That is correct. Um, it is one of the areas where experts do have long waiting lists and uh, quite a lot of demand. In the cases you've done, what kinds of issues have you been asked to give evidence on? Ha has it been on whether someone is or is not disabled in an employment tribunal claim, or has it been more focused on remedy issues such as um, condition or causation and prognosis? You do get asked on the disability itself, but um, particularly in neurodiversity, it focuses a lot on the remedies and reasonable adjustments that the employer can make. Yes. I think we're going to come on to that um, in the context of uh, autistic spectrum condition cases in a, in a moment. Uh, in, the, in the civil courts then, you said mainly uh, harassment type claims, is that right? Harassment type claims are quite often quite complex and you need to disentangle a range of issues because often they are running over a period of time and the, the medical records need to be looked at very thoroughly and carefully um, about what sort of mental health impact the reported harassment has on the claimant and also any pre-existing conditions, um, they definitely need to be looked into much more thoroughly. It's often the case, isn't it, that there are a range of contributing factors to mental health conditions and harassment at work may be, may be one of those. It's often very difficult to d disentangle the precise effect of it versus the other causes. Absolutely. Mental health conditions obviously are much more grey and complex compared to other more tangible injuries and often there is multifactorial causation and that is precisely why the records need very careful analysis. And, and precisely why there's often a range of opinions from different experts on the relative causative potency of each factor. Absolutely. Obviously the, the, it is also the expert's decision to take the reasonable range of opinions into consideration and, and give as much of a comprehensive 
opinion as possible. So are you able to give us any tips or thoughts about how those instructing you can can make your life easier and make the final report better? Some of the main issues that I have come across in my own practice as an expert witness for the last seven years, um, most of it is common sense, really. But as the saying goes, common sense is not that common. For example, first one is that of timeliness. Just this month, I had a letter of instruction arriving at 6.30 in the evening for a claimant that was meant to be seen at 10 o'clock in the morning next day. Now, they had actually not confirmed that this claimant was going to, in fact, attend the appointment. And there was about 1,500 pages of records that was sent with this instruction. And also, they wanted the um, opinion in about essentially half the time um, that was in the terms and conditions. So if my PA wasn't an extremely conscientious, trusty person who took a lot of effort to make it happen and had showed a little bit of goodwill towards this um, instructing party, the appointment would not have gone ahead at all. And and the next appointment they would have had would have been way past the time frame. So essentially, don't test the goodwill of experts when it comes to basic principles such as that. So timeliness, um, clarity, and and level of detail, I would say, are those are things to bear in mind when it comes to instructing an expert. When you say level of detail, do, do you find that people are often giving you too much detail and there's too much irrelevant information is provided or they're not giving you enough detail so you know what the task is focused on? Well, optimal level of detail takes time to perfect and it's always a work in progress for anyone really. Of course, more detail is preferable to a very sketchy letter of instruction. However, you know, you do have to be careful not to overdo it. Nobody likes an LOI with um, 20 questions when in fact 10 would have been sufficient and the other 10 is the same question being repeated in 10 different ways. And you'll be surprised how often that happens. There's a quote from Pascal, I think. If I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. So that's something to bear in mind. A familiar problem for many uh, in the legal profession, I suspect. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. And what about in terms of providing you with information? Um, what do you normally expect to see and how can those instructing you help you in, in terms of presenting that information to you? The documents, of course, when it comes to psychiatric evidence, the more detail you have, the better. Because often things that in the first instant may not look relevant could be very relevant for the particular case because of the issue I talked about, multifactorial causation. And some fact that may look innocuous or irrelevant might suddenly become very relevant in the case. And of course, um, chronology, pagination of a bundle, um, all of that is very important. One of the common issues that I've noticed with um, sometimes instructions is 
um, there, there would be a particular information that is obviously very relevant to the case, but there is no source that's been cited and I don't know where the information has come from, then it becomes a um, bit of a work to find out where exactly the information came from. And sometimes there is no uh, reference at all. When you're preparing a psychiatric report, Dr. Kowa, what what information do you do you need generally to to see in order to best uh, produce the evidence? The GP records um, give a good general overall view, and of course the specific records uh, which relate to mental health records, if available. Witness statements um, can provide a um, significant amount of information, and those are the main records that we need. I would say when it comes to records, the more uh, information, the better. Um, and because because of the multifactorial causation, the f- things that may not look in the first instance very obvious might suddenly become very relevant to a case. Yes. And sometimes qu- questions are posed to you, I assume, by those, by the parties in, in the case wanting clarity or to adduce additional evidence. Um, Have you found those questions easy to understand and helpful generally, or are they too long-winded, or I think you mentioned earlier repetitive questioning. Is there any way in which questioning of an expert, in your view, could be improved? Yes, I I think it sometimes can be both-sided. Now, when it comes to an expert, obviously the, the person has an expert status, But if you're trying to satisfy a legal test and you're not particularly sure that that test is being clearly met by the expert evidence, then you can make it clear and say, I'm clear about this bit, but I'm not so clear about that bit and avoid the long-winded questioning. And you can actually say, this is the bit we are not sure about. Can you make it clear by doing X, Y and Z? So you told us earlier one of your specialisms was um, in neurodiversity and you run a neurodiversity clinic. Uh, it's a hot topic at the moment in, um, in the legal community. I think more and more cases we're seeing disability discrimination, in particular in the employment tribunal, relating to those uh, who are neurodiverse. Um, but dealing specifically with uh, autistic spectrum condition cases, I mean, what kind of difficulties do those who have that condition experience in the workplace generally in your view? So there are some core difficulties with autism and the particular issues that they uh, find in the workplace relates to two main areas. One is around the social skills. But of course, if the um, job is customer facing and requires a lot of social interaction, then there needs to be a think about the appropriateness of that individual for the role. However, um, often I find sensory issues to be the predominant problem, often in cases where reasonable adjustments have to be made. For example, someone would find themselves with sensory overload And it might be something as simple as getting them a noise-cancelling headphone because they are unable to function with with the level of overload they have. And sensory overload can be anything ranging from 
a sensitivity to lights and noises and textures. So a lot of those can be very simple adjustments to make with very little cost that makes a um, huge difference to the quality of life for the individual and their work output. It's interesting you mentioned that because I've had a couple of cases recently along those lines and I think it's more of an acute problem post-pandemic because there's a trend obviously for people to work more from home. Businesses are downsizing their premises and having people come in on different days of the week often. The result of that is that there's a lot more hot desking mm-hmm. around. People are sharing desks rather than having their own allocated desk. Mm-hmm. And in the cases I've done, that's been a problem for the claimant who had uh, autism, uh, who found the hot desking arrangement very, very challenging compared to the previous environment in which they'd had their own desk in a quiet area of the office. And that wasn't as easy to guarantee. And I, I think that's probably a a more common problem now, and as you say, can be addressed if some thought's given to it relatively easily, actually, by way of reasonable adjustments. Yes, absolutely. And also agile working. With autistic people, it's much more relevant when it comes to agile working. If they are allowed to work from home as part of their contract, you may find that you get much better work output and performance out of them. So you you mentioned um, sensory issues, other issues, social issues, they're a problem? Social and emotional reciprocity is a very core issue in autism. And the other is around interpreting um, information. So they may find it difficult to uh, interpret complex grey information and might be very literal in terms of um, their thinking. Now, sometimes that can be very, very useful. And often I find that autistic people work in areas that require that level of that kind of information, for example, data analysis and coding, etc. So um, when it comes to social and emotional reciprocity, obviously it can be a difficult one when it comes to customer-facing roles. And it may be the case that they need uh, extra support in terms of understanding the potential implications for themselves and others when they do not get the crux of the customer interaction. But um, when it comes to uh, interpretation of data, etc., I haven't seen that to be much of a problem, really, because often that comes as a strength rather than weakness. Yes. Amy, I think you had a... uh a case recently involving a claimant with uh, autistic spectrum condition. Is that right? Uh, yes, Andy. Yes, I did. And w- what were the issues raised in that case? Um, so again, it all came back to the parameters of being disabled under Section 6 of the Equality Act and whether the claimant had enough evidence to satisfy the tribunal that they were disabled within the Equality Act um, as a result of their autism spectrum condition. Uh, And in that case, we didn't actually have um, any expert evidence uh, that could be relied upon. We only had the the records. But another tool that um, the judge used as part of the determinations was use of the equal treatment bench book for uh, courts, tribunals and the judiciary. And that gave an outline um, in quite a lot of detail, actually, autism spectrum condition 
and um, detail the condition itself, difficulties in diagnosis and common traits or symptoms. Uh, and in that case, what we did was a lot of cross-reference between uh, GP records and, and the information that um, Davika's discussed as, as that's helpful to her when preparing her reports, um, cross-reference those records with the uh, guidance in the bench book, uh, which allow the tribunal to be a bit more confident in terms of making their determinations where uh, we didn't have the helpful um, advice that and, and expert reporting that Davika's um, able to provide. Davika, you were mentioning about social issues. I mean, the other case I had recently involved those kind of issues where the claimant was disciplined at work for their interactions with their colleagues, which were said to be overly aggressive, uh, overly confrontational, lacking any kind of soft touches around the edges. And their colleagues objected, but the claimant had autism. And the issue in that case was whether or not their presentation at work was something arising from the autism, and if so, whether the disciplinary proceedings were justified or, or not, or whether it was in fact a, just an, a facet of the claimant's personality. So where, where the condition ended and where their personality started was a, is a, is a difficult line to find sometimes. It is, uh, definitely. And that's precisely why it will need um, quite a bit of looking into when it comes to their functioning, not just inside work, also outside work and their overall functioning. And you will have to also break down each area which potentially relates to autism and potentially relates to their personality and what range of severity each of these issues can be sort of ascribed so the more structure uh, when it comes to analysis of those issues, the more answers you get. Where autism ends and personality begins is a difficult question, especially with high-functioning autism. That's a particular interest of yours, I think, isn't it? That, that yes. High-functioning <laughs> high individuals. Absolutely. High-performing, high-functioning individuals. Um, just as um, kind of a background, I grew up in this part of rural India where there was no electricity and um, I was quite sort of obsessed with what gets people from somewhere like that to say traveling the world and getting to Oxford that's where a lot of it came from which eventually I did <laughs> but um, so high performance I realized also comes with its own challenges um, and when it comes to neurodiversity, I realize there is a lot of high performers with neurodiversity issues, particularly ADHD and autism. If someone is very autistic, a lot of their behavior can very much look like a, a disordered personality. And it needs very careful looking at, particularly when it comes to their thinking, because usually they would have developed their own ways of coping with the world. And, and sometimes they literally break it down into formats and scenarios and have different um, formulas for dealing with each situation. So they can look like they're coping from the outside and they can look very efficient. But um, when you dig deeper, you realize they're not intuitively feeling their way around in the world. Instead, they're, they're literally breaking it down into lots of different things that they can understand and, and working with it. So um, in a sense, if someone has got autism, think about the first 
potential reason first before we think about personality. And I imagine in those high functioning cases, it can be quite difficult for employers to um, identify in the first place and then determine how best to make adjustments. Absolutely. Absolutely. When somebody said to me, uh, they were about 50 years old and they said, when I was growing up, autism and ADHD didn't exist. <laughs> it's, well, I think I can see what he meant. It's the awareness of it, autism and ADHD wasn't there very much. And um, it's such a relief for them to finally understand why they feel like an alien in the world all the time. Yes. And the growing awareness now is, is probably what's leading to more claims now as a, as a result of these conditions. Absolutely. But you do. Yeah, obviously, we have to be a bit careful uh, about the sort of retrospective thinking, because often with growing awareness of autism and ADHD, also there is the risk of overdiagnosis. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it is a real risk. If you do get expert evidence uh, in regards to autism or ADHD, make sure you are getting it from a very detailed, comprehensive report with the um, appropriate rating scales, appropriate developmental history and um, very clear breakdown of issues and severity because of the same risk of overdiagnosis. And finally, Amy, I know when we're instructing experts in disability cases, whether they're autism or otherwise, we, we've got to be remember, don't we, that we, we're not asking experts to tell us whether people are or are not disabled. That's a question for the tribunal. So the, the, the experts there to help with specific issues, aren't they? It, yes, no, certainly. It's, it's part of the tribunal's determination um, when looking at the Equality Act, but it, it the experts ultimately assisting the tribunal in terms of allowing them to determine whether there's a mental impairment there and the adverse effect that that has on the individual um, and, and the period of time of which that effect's likely to last. And, and then it's for the tribunal to decide whether that's the disability. Just the, the diagnosis itself may not be enough and may vary case to case. Thank you very much. Well, I think we've uh, we've certainly learnt a lot about, or a lot more about uh, autism and autistic spectrum conditions, and um, and also about how to instruct an expert. I'll certainly be bearing in mind your words uh, if I'm asked to assist with letters of instruction in terms of clarity and timeliness and the level of detail that's required. So thank you very much for your uh, assistance today. Certainly found it very useful as well, Devika. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening.